the slide didn't reflect the exact topic of the sermon this morning. I, I got distracted with other things up here and forgot to, forgot to change it. But I want to talk with you about a shelter in a time of storm. Sometime yesterday afternoon, I decided I was going to preach on Father's Day. And then I got one of my, I haven't had them in years, one of my patented headaches, nausea, all that stuff. So you're stuck with the sermon I originally wrote. Maybe we'll do a late Father's Day sermon next week, something like that, because I'd been thinking about a few things about that. But uh, in, in any event, I do want to talk with you about this subject, and I don't really have a good title for this sermon. It's one of those kind of sermons where these things are running through my mind. I tried to think them through properly. I do want to talk about them. Maybe I won't be able to express myself well this morning about these things. I don't know. Sometimes it works like that. Other times, and then I get in trouble. But uh, we're trying to do that. There's a lot of things I want to say about this topic, and it isn't really a clear topic from what you can see. But let's just get started this morning and see where it goes. And let's turn to the book of Isaiah in chapter 4. And here is a messianic prophecy. This prophecy is about, hang on, my car keys are wrapped in the microphone cord. All right, anyway, man. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3, beginning. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, which is a prophetic name for the city of Jerusalem. So in this prophecy, you're seeing his predictions about the real city of Jerusalem and the captivity that's coming. And then you're seeing the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of the church and God's salvation for all men. Kind of see those two things together here. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, that is, set apart to God. And everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, even and when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, a place of refuge, and, a sh- and for a shelter from storm and rain. We have a song in our book, A Shelter in the Time of Storm, which is probably taken from this very thought. There are a couple of other references like this, but this is the one that sticks out to me. God said there's a day coming. When I have purged the wicked out and made my people holy, then my people, I will provide them a covering and a a time of shade from the heat and a place of refuge and a shelter from the storm. I believe that is the age we live in, the church era that's prophesied about, where God's people have been taken out of the world, made holy to him, and been given the shade from all the things that go on around about them. And I'm going to talk with you about that a little bit. I read a couple of articles the last couple of weeks um, that were talking about some of the difficulties in our age. You know, the, the uh, Christian worldview is under very severe attack from the secularists of our society and around the world and in the United States. And this battle has been going on since I've been a child. It just seems to be more apparent now. And the interesting thing about it that's happened is not only have uh, uh, um, the progressive 
become woke, they've apparently woke up a lot of other people. That won't work out well because the opposition to those who are woke is also woke. You know, it's like I say about the race issue at times. It's very discouraging, this business about identity politics, that everybody should be marked out and identified by what color they are or what ethnic group they belong to. We see this in everyday life. It's obvious this person has this color skin, this person has this skin, this person speaks that. Those are obvious things that we can't hide, and who, who should be ashamed of that? But when you begin to constantly point out this person is this color, they need to all go together, they all think alike, this person is this color, they're toxic, they're destructive. Now, you begin to point that out, and over time, people take that seriously. And they wonder why we have more Ku Klux Klansmen out visible in society, why there's more white supremacists out in the open. You've just told these people for years now that, that they belong together, that they all ought to be together, that they all think alike, and they're all under attack, and they're all wicked. What do you expect them to do? A certain element's always going to come out. You've just made things worse. You haven't made things better. You've made them worse. And then when you portray that all people of this skin color all have to think alike, and if they don't, they're not really that, you know, you've just unleashed a destructive wave of prejudice on the country from every angle you can think of. This is what's happening. It's not the way forward. And so you keep pointing these things out and they keep getting worse. And the same thing is true when you keep sticking a finger into the eye of Christians at every turn. How wicked they are. You can't expect these things not to have some effect. And, and, you know, this decision recently uh, about... Assembling. This has come out, and this, this virus thing has really brought some of these issues to the front. There's people in Canada, over they're being taken away in handcuffs because they went to church. It's happened throughout the United States. Being per- taken away and locked up in jail with no bail because they go to church. You can't do those things and not have some effect on people. And there will be responses. And some of those won't be very pretty. That's my point. I'm not justifying any white supremacist in any way whatsoever. I hate the entire idea of that. But I'm saying you just push things one way, it goes the other way. The Bible says something totally different. And the same thing is true about persecuting Christians. I don't think Christians should have gay people locked up in jail and executed. You know that I don't believe anything like that at all. But... But when you begin to attack, attack, attack. We were told for years, for example, that all the gay people wants to be left alone. Is that what it looks like to you? Doesn't look like that to me now. They don't want to be left alone. They want, they want me to accept everything and give them applause for it and force you to bake a cake whether you want to or not. It isn't about leaving people alone, letting them live their life. Something else is at work here. We were lied to. We were lied to. It was obvious anybody was paying attention. We were, going to, we were being lied to, but we were being lied to about what the intentions of this movement are. They want to shut places like this down and stop us from believing and teaching what the Bible says about personal morality and a lot of other issues. Now, the sooner, unfortunately, the sooner that we wake up to that, the better off we'll be. And then the temptation, though, is to become hostile and antagonistic and begin to treat people as enemies in, in, in the way of an enemy instead of the way of the way of Christ. 
The decision of the, this is from the Wall Street Journal. The decision is the fifth time the court has overruled the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, which is out in the West Coast, San Francisco area, on pandemic orders against worship. As an exasperated majority points out, the, willing, the willfulness of the lower courts in defying the high court underscores how much religious liberty needs protecting against the militant secular values that now dominate American public life. This is what the Wall Street Journal says. There, it's obvious because of the attacks that's gone on the last few years that somebody has to protect religious freedom in the United States. Some courts are willing to, some are not. Now, th- this is a... This is an unbelievable statement in the American newspaper that it should come to this. But it's the truth. Where do we sit in this? Where do you fit in with all this? We just all in the, why can't we all just get along and ignore this? Is that where we are? Maybe that's the best course. You know, Ross Douthat in the uh, uh, New York Times, he's a religious columnist there. He's a Catholic. Many cultural elites, and a very progressive Catholic too, but many cultural elites are committed to a moral vision that regards emancipated, self-directed choice as essential to human freedom and the good life. Now what this says, if I can translate it into something more sensible uh, to us anyway, is that the elites of our society, the progressives and the, the, the uh, people on either coast and the liberals and progressive of our society are not believers in God or spiritual things. But they believe that, that what really is the good moral vision for people is just to have completely free, emancipated thoughts and a self-directed choice that if everybody could just be freed from all religious restrictions and make their own self-directed choice as to how they want to live, everybody would be better off. That that's a good vision for society, free from any restrictions or restraints whatsoever, especially spiritual or religious restraints. Is that right? Is that the society that we should be looking forward to, looking for? Is that the society we should be trying to create both religiously, personally, politically, where everybody gets to make their choices completely free from any restraint or or religious laws whatsoever? And a self-directed choice means I'm in charge of what I want to do and nobody can tell me what to do. This is where we think I have, this is what's going on. This is what a lot of the rioting is about. Oh, I'm not talking about rioting over someone being hurt by the police, but I'm saying just the, just the self-directed anger. A lot of the rioting that we saw was not just because a, a black man had been unjustly treated by a white policeman. It was just it, that unleashed a lot of other problems. This... The, the, the thing that happened didn't happen in Portland. Portland is still under siege by progressive rioters, Antifa. They are essentially anarchists. They're using and piggybacking, unfortunately, racial things which should be dealt with. But they're piggybacking this anarchist movement. And that's what it's about, free choice. Now, here's the thing I want you to think about this morning in light of We'll come back to the Isaiah passage in just a moment. I'm I'm going to get back there. Just hang on with me for a minute. Does this secular moral vision work? Does it work to say that the way that human beings can be happy and productive is to allow them to do pretty much whatever they want, free from any restrictions by God or religious ideas? 
Does it work to live in a secular world where God is diminished? This has been a big debate in philosophy for a long time. And I would say, especially now the last 10 or 12 years, there's a big debate in religious and philosophical circles is, can people who don't believe in God be moral? Is there any way to establish any kind of morality? Because people all over the world, both political and intellectual people, are concerned. Because once you remove God from the equation, how do people act? Well, they act pretty badly. They act pretty viciously toward each other. It's been shown not only in world in governments like Hitler and Stalin, Cuba, other places like that, but it's been shown in other ways that when you remove God, people don't act very well. They become brutal and moral and destructive. Societies collapse under the weight of this. And so the debate among them is, can we have an atheistic moral order? Is there any way to establish it? Now, I'm going to tell you from everything I've studied in my lifetime and read, no, it's not. Human beings cannot establish on their own a way to direct themselves without God above them. The strongest will always rule over the weaker. And so the majority will win. The one with the most guns, the most weapons, uh, the most people, the majority of people, they will always dominate the rest, and there's no way to stop it. There's no moral vision outside of a vision of God that tells man who he really is. That's what we talked about maybe last week. What is man? Well, we talked a little bit about that, and I'm coming at it from a different angle this week. That there is no, how do you even establish what's right or wrong? I'm going to get too sidetracked, but I was on the, I got on the radio. I used to listen to a call, uh, talk radio for years when there wasn't much talk radio around. There was a show on, uh, on, from, on uh, WIOD, I think, or one of those stations out of Miami years ago when I lived down that way. Uh, afternoon talk show. This guy that was the host, I think his name was White or something, he, he was a pretty middle-of-the-road guy. So he has on a professor from the University of Miami one day. I'm listening to this. Some, I forgot the guy's name. He has this professor on. And this guy's thesis was Christianity is immoral. That was his thesis. He wrote a book, Christianity is Immoral, because of certain things like, you know, like the Crusades and like um, the Inquisition. I called him up. So I called him up. I'm on the air. Of course, I don't have the credentials of being a professor at the University of Miami or all kind of other titles he had. But I said, I'd like to ask you a question. I said, you, you say that Christianity is immoral. He said, yeah. I said, so can you define morality for me? Can you define that? Well, he gave some, basically what he said was, whatever's illegal is immoral. That's more or less what he said. I said, so you're just saying that if it's, that we, that if it's illegal, it's immoral. I said, yeah. I said, well, that's a start. I said, so... Now, remember, this is Miami, full of many Jewish people whose relatives have been in concentration camps. I knew this. I said, well, let's just talk about that for a moment. So in, in Nazi Germany, it wasn't illegal to persecute Jews. It was really pl- applauded socially and legally to persecute, even to kill Jews. Was that immoral? And he him hauled around. And the host says, well, you know, that's a good question. I said, yeah, I know it's a good question. How do you define morality? It was perfectly legal to do what he did. And I was trying to point out, there's got to be something higher than the majority of the people in the land saying. There's got to be something higher than the law that tells you, that tells the law what to be. The principle of the United States Constitution, Declaration of Independence, is that there is a higher authority than the federal government over man that God established that tells the government what to do. 
about things. That's the whole point of, the, of those documents. And we want to throw them away. And so I pressed on about this. Well, I, I, he, he didn't have an answer. And the host said, you haven't answered the man's question. And I said, well, I'll ask, I'll ask it more personally then. Now let's, say, let's say I walk up, I said, I know why it was wrong to persecute Jews. As a Christian, I know, I can articulate to you very clearly why it was wrong because I believe in God and I believe in right and wrong based on God's nature and his will. And I know that, I can tell you, but you don't have an answer. And so let me ask you this. Let's say we were to meet, I walk down to the radio station there and I put a forty-five caliber gun to your, your temple and I say, uh, give me one reason why I shouldn't pull this trigger. Now, of course, today I'd probably be, they'd be hunting me down and arresting me. But I said, suppose I put a gun to your temple and said, give me one reason why I shouldn't pull the trigger. Well, he, he didn't say anything. And the host says, that's a good question. I said, yeah, I know it's a good question. <laughs> and he stumbled around. And I finally said, look, as a Christian that you say is immoral, I can give you a reason why it would be wrong for me to do that. I can tell you several reasons from the Bible and from my belief why that would be wrong, but you don't have an answer as an atheist why that would be wrong. But Christianity is immoral. You can't even define what immorality is. And I said, yes, Christians do immoral things, and we know they're immoral because we have a God that tells us what they are. Even though we do them, we know what they are. But as an atheist... Not only do you not know what is morally immoral, you have no way to stop it and you can't define it. And you're still going to do the immoral things. This is where we are. This is where we're heading as a society. The only ones that will be right or wrong are the ones that have the power to decide who gets persecuted, who doesn't. Who gets sent off to re-education camps and who doesn't. Who can pray to whatever God they want or who doesn't. Only the powerful can do that when we throw away what things we have. And we as Christians should know better than to give in to these kind of secular ideas. But I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't work. Now let's go down to a different, a different article, a different approach to this. So here's an article from The Guardian. It's an English newspaper by one of their editors or an art columnist there. How do faithless people like me make sense of this past year of COVID? This is an unbeliever. And he writes this article. It's a good article. How do people like me who have no faith in God, don't believe in God, make any sense of what's been going on in the world the last year. When my partner and I filled out our census, I'm, I'm gonna re- I know it's bad, it's bad radio, it's bad TV, it's bad preaching, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to read you something here, part of something here. When my partner and I filled our census form, we got to the section about faith, we both ticked the no religion box, and seemed to think nothing of it. But for an hour or two afterwards, they probably felt great pride. I'm one of the smart ones in society. I'm not a deluded, superstitious person that has religion. So they gladly check the no religion box. I'm so smart. I'm so elite. But for an hour or two afterwards, I felt a pang of envy that has occasionally surfaced in the past. This time to do with the year of lockdowns, the sudden fear of serious illness and death, and the sense of all of it being wholly random, of it all being wholly random and senseless. Was this, I wondered, how religious believers were feeling? Or were they able to give their recent experiences at least some semblance of coherence and meaning? Is this how believers were feeling, same way as I did, hopeless and unsure of everything and having no meaning to it all and fearful? Or did they have a different view? 
Like millions of other faithless people, I have not even the flimsiest of narratives to project on to what has happened, nor any real vocabulary with which to talk about it, the profundities of life and death. Now think about that. I have no, not even the flimsiest of narratives to project onto what has happened. I can't even figure out at all what to say about this in the picture, in the big picture of my life and the world. And I don't have any vocabulary to talk about the profundities of life and death. You know what? He's correct about that. He doesn't have it. All he has is, since we're so progressive and enlightened here in Europe and America, we get to go about our business. We get to enjoy life. I, I know what fine wine to drink and who has the best caviar. I know this. I drive this car and that car. And, and we, they go through life and they want this partner or that partner or whatever it may be. And they go through life and sometimes you come up to the end and there's, they realize there's nothing. I don't have anything that means anything. What does it mean now? That God, this is why God allows these kind of plagues to strike people. That's one of the reasons why he allows these kinds of plagues to strike a society. So that some people will have a chance to stop and think about life and death and what it all might mean and what am I going to do about it all. And he's saying the faithless people that I know don't have anywhere to go. Beyond a handful of close friends and colleagues and my immediate family, there's been no community of like minds with whom I have talked about how I am feeling or ritualistically mark the passing of all these grinding weeks and months. You know how I mark my time? Imagine the same way you mark your time. I love coming together here on Sunday, seeing all of you, whoever is here, visiting with you, getting to know you, visiting with you some during the week here and there. And I mark my time based on the assemblies of the Lord's people in this church. That's how I mark my... And for a while, when we weren't having Wednesday night service even, Sunday night, uh, I, I was lost for a while. Not just because I have a habit of going there since I was a baby, but because I didn't have a way to mark the time properly in my head. And we're like that, like that a lot of the time. And especially, we don't have a way to communicate with other people of like minds about what's going on around us. We do this effortlessly and without thinking about it. He doesn't have this. He's missing something and that you don't even know that you have. You don't even understand that you have it as a believer. You take it for granted. And this man now realizes, I haven't had this at all. Even now, with restrictions soon to be lifted, the chance of any shared reflection on the last year's events still seems slim. Secularized societies do not really work like that. We just don't have any way, he says, in our secular society to really connect with other people closely and talk about important things and share these experiences. And you know, you and I, are go you're going to disagree with me before this sermon's over, but at least we have some shared basis upon which we can talk about these things and it's belief in God and love for his people that gives us this thing that we don't even appreciate, that people take for granted. Today... A mixture of individualism and collective denial leaves many of us without the ideas or language to conceive of COVID like that. That is, we don't have any way to talk about uh, the, how we've suffered, what it all means, what it means to other people, what we can do about it, what the big picture is. We don't have any way because we're an individualist. I love individualism and rugged individualism, but, in, but the Bible speaks of me as an individual having liberty and freedom, but also connects me to other people in a body of Christ, a body that connects me up to other people, and, and that's what he, they're missing. 
It says, and besides, even if we wanted, once rules allow us to try and make shared sense of our recent experience, in other words, once they say, take off the mask and go where you want, where would we do it? Where would we unbelievers do this? A bar? A strip club? A golf course? Where would we do it? When it comes to mortality, we have relatively few social institutions that allow us to talk about it, and we see each other through it, says University College historian John uh, Sabapathy. We secular people just don't have anything in society where we can go and talk about life and death and important things, sin, right and wrong. We can talk about who got the lowest score, who has the best caviar, but that's it. What is currently going wrong is clear. A third of Britons feel less connected to their community than they did before the pandemic. And just under 40% do not think their feelings of loneliness will go away once restrictions are lifted. What this has done is it's shown people that they really are alone and there's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot of hope of a different kind of life, something being better in the end. They certainly don't have a hope of an afterlife of any, any real way. And this is all it is. For many of us, life without God has turned out to be life without fellowship and shared meaning. And in the midst of the most disorienting, debilitating crisis most of us have ever known, that social tragedy now cries out for action. Well, in the rest of the article, him and his uh, buddy from the university basically say, well, we need some more community clubs to get to go to go to, to talk about this. We need to get together like Christians do and, and talk to each other and love each other and eat and drink together. We need more places like that in society, so we need another government program to do that. How's that working out for you? How many of you spend much time with the, Saint, the poor St. Lucie Community Center talking about life and death and important things and praying with, the, praying with those people there about the things going on in your life? How many of you do that? Well, you wouldn't even think of it. We've got plenty of places like that that he wants here. But they don't, you can't just say, well, we can, what they're saying in the article, we can do the same thing as churches, but just without the religion part. People have been trying to do that for a long time. They want to have the blessings that God gives people without that religion part, without that sin and repentance part, without that guilt part, without the coming to church on Sunday and, and communion. They want to do all, have all the benefits without that other part that they don't like. You know, I, I, uh, what you feed chicken, let's go, let's go to the important matter, not chickens. And uh, people say, well, you use that feed that Purina makes. It's all of it's mashed together, and it's so unnatural. I know it's unnatural. It's because chickens don't know any better about what to eat than a kid does. You get your natural grains and throw them out on the ground. The chickens will pick out all the corn all the sweet, it's like candy to them, it's all carbohydrate. They pick out all the corn and leave all the other stuff there. And if they get hungry, they have to pick out a few other things they like. But they never will eat some of it. And they're missing nutrients. They're missing, they don't even know what they're missing. They'll get weak, they won't lay eggs, they, they can't reproduce because they're not getting a balanced diet. They're only getting what they want. So they take this, all these grains, put them in a big hopper, crush them up, mix something with them, make it into a pellet or a crumble. Now the chicken sees a little bit of corn and grits it, but he's getting all the other stuff with it too. And people in the world want to pick out the parts that they think they don't like and think they can get the same result. Can't be done. Now I want to talk to us a little bit. We got, our time is gone now. It's time to stop, but we're not going to stop. Let's just think for a few minutes about this. 
been, a, been over a year now. We, we tried to respond in a sensible way to a disease we didn't know much about. We made adjustments here. Some of the adjustments are permanent. But I, I, t- I had a chance, as I said, I had a chance to go to a couple other churches the last month or two traveling. Two of the churches I went to, and if you're listening, I'm not being critical. I'm just observing what I personally think. But both, both these places had these little communion. We've changed how we do it here. I think we should go back like we were, but I'm one of those kind of people. They both hand you as you walk in. One, one of the churches we went to, they don't have a table anymore. They got rid of the table. They don't need a table. When you walk in, they give you a little plastic cup thing. And nothing says you have to have a table, but I'm just saying, they, they realize the implications of what, we're, what I'm talking about here. You walk in, if you're there, some, they, don't, they haven't been there yet, they don't come back. But if you're there, you get a little cup and you peel off the top and there's a little piece of styrofoam in there they call the bread. Put it in your mouth, it's basically styrofoam. Am I lying about, anybody had this? I'm, I'm not lying, am I? It's just styrofoam. I don't sure how that, what's in there. But then you, and you eat that, and then you, and it made me miss Sandy's bread so much. <laughs> Actual bread baked by human hands that told, that was like the word bread in the Bible. And then you drink some kind of stuff, and it was, I don't even know how to describe what was the juice was. I have no words. And this is the new normal. This is where we are. And the best part that we think we found is you can do this in your pajamas at home. You don't even have to be out. You can just sit there in your pajamas or worse and and do this and everything will be perfect. It's all supposed to be perfect. Look, you can do a lot of things in an emergency that you can't do other times. I understand that. There's examples in the Bible I can give you where there were emergencies and they had to do one thing. but, But is this the way we want to live? Do we really think that we can get the effect of being together as the body of Christ over a camera? And we spent money on these. I, we're not getting rid of these, this camera. But it's not because I think everybody should be at home in their pajamas taking the Lord's Supper. Is that the same as taking it here in person? It isn't the same. Maybe a necessity in times of difficulty. I have no pro- and we have no problem with that. We've said so. Some of you needed to stay home. Few of you were really sick. You need to stay home till things got better. We understand that. We said it from the day one. But is it a replacement for being together with the body of Christ? Are we going to get what this secular guy is missing? He's missing it. Are we going to get that by just going on as if this is all normal? We're not. I said on one of the first things I said about this way back. You can probably get the recording somewhere. That let's don't make this normal. And I think it's time to start thinking about that. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I can't tell anybody specifically what to do, but what God says about this is this, in Hebrews 10. Let us draw near to God with a full assurance of faith. We need a full assurance of faith and not fear. The opposite of faith is fear. Sometimes you're smart to be afraid, but overall, but fear is not a good lifestyle for a Christian. Let us draw near in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember God said in Prophet of Isaiah, he would wash them and clean them up? That's happened to you and I. And now then, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We have to have confidence that in God that when he says, gather 
remember my name, exhort one another, provoke one another, that he's correct about that. That's the right way to do it. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, this forsaking here isn't missing services once in a while because you're sick or something like that. that that's not forsaking. Forsaking is abandoning Amen. this assembly. And so we have to think about that. What would that look like to abandon the assembly? He says here the purpose of this assembly is not only to exhort one another. That's to pick each other up and say, get back on the right track. But it's also to consider one another. That means to think carefully about it. Consider the lilies of the field. This doesn't mean just look at lilies. Jesus said, yeah, you see the lilies, but I want you to more than see them. I want you to consider them. Think about these lilies. They don't work. They don't have a job. Look how beautiful they are. You're worried about your clothes. They have better clothes than you. They don't worry about this. Consider the lilies of the field. And that's what the word means here. Consider one another. Think about each other deeply and carefully. One, the best way you can do that is to be with somebody. And so that you can stir people up to love and good works. We need that. I need that all the time. God knows I need that because he told me to do it. This is not a command just that God gave you just so you can make your life hard. This is something you need that's good for you to do. And so I want to encourage you. Make all your plans to be together with the church whenever that you can, however you can do it. Lay aside some fears and come and be with the Lord. You know, uh, people worry about the Lord's Supper. The only study that's been done on this, I published in the Bulletin some months ago. It was done in Los Angeles years ago. They were trying to decide whether people can get sick from taking communion. You know what they found? It doesn't happen. They couldn't find any evidence in all the research they did of any outbreaks of illness from people taking the Lord's Supper. Well, I thought we were supposed to follow the science. That's the science we got on, the, on communion. Now, maybe there's, different commu- maybe there's different science now, but I haven't read it. Is there, am I saying there's some magical power in communion? No. But anyway, Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Be, the, be ye therefore of sound mind and sober unto prayer. And above all things, he says, be fervent in your love among yourselves. Among yourselves is not just saying, I love you, I love you, but it's something that's going on in the midst of you, among you. For love covers a multitude of sins. Using hospitality one another without murmuring. Using. He uses the grammatical form of using a tool. That's the date of instrumentality in Greek, in case you want to know, I think. And it's, it's like using a hammer to drive a nail. We use hospitality to be fervent in our love. Hospitality is loving strangers or, more broadly, showing kindness to other people. And it's come to me, in this context, I think it means getting together with other people, eating and drinking, being with them, giving them things that they need, which here it is a spiritual gift. He doesn't call it benevolence, helping somebody who's poor eat. He's talking about us enjoying this together. It's, it's a gift. Even Jesus says the other way doesn't work. I'm going to close out. I know we're over time. Close out with this. You can build a house on the sand or on the rock. This secular worldview, this sounds so educated, so lofty, is a house built on sand. 
I think that poor man in England there, that smart editor or whatever he was at the Guardian, I think that's what he's saying and doesn't realize it, that the house I've built for myself and my family to live on is a house of sand. It doesn't hold up in time of crisis. That's when you know you've got a good house, when it holds up in a time of storm. We have that house in Jesus Christ. It will bear us up. It has borne people up through this, this problem we've had. Faith. And he sees that. The secular man sees it. I wonder how many Christians just don't see that because they're so afraid. Whoever hears these words and sayings of mine and does them not, and, and does them, I will like him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And here he says the storms came and they blew and they couldn't take the house down. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be likened to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And great was its fall. This is where our society is headed. A society that's intentionally running away from God as fast as it can. It is a house built on sand and it will fall. It won't be pretty. It will be hurtful to all of us. It will be destructive. I don't wish for it. But I just know this about houses built on sand. They can't They can't stand. They fall. Don't be a part of that when God brings judgment upon the world. He who trusts his own heart is a fool, Proverbs says. But whoever walks wise will be delivered. You don't have the answer in yourself. You need the wisdom of God and the wisdom of your brothers and sisters. So by whatever means necessary, make sure that you reestablish the connections that you need with the Lord's people. And, and to come and, and join in the worship and work of the church. We're going to try to re, redo some things here that have fallen by the wayside the last year. We're going to try to re, get things going again. And uh, I want to urge you to be a part of that. Because you need that. And that's what God has destined to. Well, our time is gone today. I appreciate it very much. I have no idea if it made any sense to you at all. But that's what I had to say. Next week, I'll give you a diatribe about fathers. Come back and hear that. Maybe I will. A harangue, a rant. There's other words for it. Some people call it a sermon, but anyway. (laughs) No, I think this is an important issue. And we've got to see the devastating effects of this secular worldview that's being pumped like a transfusion into our children and into us for what it is. It's worthless. We're going to sing this song that Brother Gary selected, Do You Know My Jesus, Jesus, number 125, as we close our assembly today. We invite you to come if you're not a Christian today and be baptized. Name his name and become a follower of Christ and get, get something that's real, something that will give you a foundation in life and be saved. If we can help you with that, we stand ready to do that. If your desire is to be saved, you come forward this morning. Let's stand and sing.